coming to you from the Motor City. Hello, and welcome to Detroit's Daily Docket. When examining someone's death, most people don't give a second thought to the manner of death. You might think because there are only five choices, natural, homicide, accident, etc., how hard can it be? But in reality, that's not always the case. Today, four of our doctors will have a deep conversation on manner of death, and you'll learn about their personal thoughts on its classification. Hi, and welcome back to the next episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and we are all in studio today, wearing masks and distancing, of course. We have Drs. Lavity, Reyes, and Wynn. Today's topic will be a little different from the other episodes that we've had. We're going to be talking about some of the nuances involved in the manner of death. Once again, the manner of death describes the circumstances surrounding the cause of death. In 1995, the National Association of Medical Examiners, or NAME, that's N-A-M-E for short, sent out a questionnaire to more than 700 physician medical examiners and coroners who were members of NAME. The questionnaire contained 23 scenarios in which they were asked to determine the manner of death, and the purpose was to see how much agreement there was in those determinations. About 30% of the people responded and NAME took those responses and discussed the scenarios and questionnaire at their interim meeting in 1996. There was a panel of five forensic pathologists, and the purpose besides sharing the questionnaire data was to also have a meaningful discussion into the relevant issues that each scenario presented with regards to the manner of death. We at the office find the scenarios and the discussions that follow to be pretty informative for those in training and those that are already staff pathologists. Our forensic pathology fellows and rotating pathology residents and students get to test their understanding of the manner of death and are asked to do so with a minimal amount of information. And those of us who are experienced quote-unquote old dogs get to think through the scenarios with a fresh set of eyes and opinions and occasionally learn a couple new tricks. And as we said during our last episode, there is no doubt that science and objective findings go into the determination of the manner of death, but there's also an art and subjectivity that play a part in making these classifications. We thought it would be interesting and educational if the four of us sat down together, worked through some of the manners of death scenarios to give insight into the decision-making process that we use and highlight some of the issues that each scenario presents. In order to do this, let's start with reviewing the five manners of death that we have here in Michigan. I want to emphasize in Michigan because some other states have different manners of death. The first one for us is natural. That's where death is exclusively due to the internal disease process. Accident, where death is not the expected outcome. An example is with most drug deaths, where people use drugs for the purpose of getting high. Another is with most car collisions. Here, people drive to get from point A to point B. They aren't predicting to slide on ice or hit a tree or even hit a pedestrian. Next comes suicide. This is simply death at one's own hand. Examples include internal gunshot wounds and hangings. And as we discussed in season one, with hangings, the medical examiner or coroner's criteria for classifying these deaths as suicide is different than what families might rely on. Fourth is homicide. In homicides, death is at the hands of another person. Examples include strangulation and multiple gunshot wounds. The last one is indeterminate. This one's used where there's more difficulty and the manner cannot be determined. As we previously said, the decision-making process for determining the manner of death is influenced by where the friends of pathology trained and who their mentor was. Undoubtedly, there are regional variations in these determinations. Dr. Wynn and I trained in Southeast Michigan under Dr. Lavity, so you would expect that the three of us would have very similar thinkings in regards to the manner of death. Dr. Reyes trained in Wisconsin, so he might have a different way of thinking. Even if we do have similar opinions, for the sake of discussion, we'll try to take different points of view. 
to preface things, in real life, we have the luxury of a complete medical legal death investigation and a forensic examination to determine the manner of death. Here, each scenario contains a minimal amount of information and is therefore not complete. But I want each of us to choose a manner and hopefully one other than indeterminate. There is no right or wrong answer, and the idea is to show what we are thinking when we make these choices. So let's start off with Dr. Lavity. So first we're going to start with a group of five scenarios that all involve drugs or alcohol. The first one is a young woman with a history of drug abuse is found dead in an abandoned building known for being a location where drug users go to purchase and use drugs. She is found with drug paraphernalia next to her body. Toxicology revealed morphine from heroin in her blood. What is the manner of death? Who wants to start out? Dr. Wynn? Um, So typically in cases where we have drug toxicity, especially acute drug toxicity, we'll call that accident. Again, as Dr. Sung said, accident is death that is unexpected, has an unexpected outcome. Again, because it's acute drug intoxication, we typically say that this is accident. Would it matter if the drug was an illegal substance? No, it doesn't matter if it's an illegal substance because, as we all know, acute drug toxicity can occur with multiple different types of drugs, such as aspirin, Tylenol, etc. So in ME cases, it does not matter if it's illegal or illegal substance. Do you ever think about suicide when it comes to drug-related cases? Well, that's an option to think of. However, uh, we cannot reliably know what the decedents were thinking before they committed the action that resulted in their death. I know some offices uh, leave the manner of death as undetermined due to that same fact that we cannot know what they were intending. But in our office, these cases are signed as accidents. Mm -hmm. Would the level that was present in their bloodstream change in this exact scenario, uh, would it change your opinion as to accident versus suicide versus indeterminate? If it's a prescribed medication, I'm not talking illicit drugs, but for me, for prescribed medications, the level does play into part. If it is vastly greater than the standard toxic level of a drug, then I would definitely entertain suicide for that. Now, illicit drugs are a little bit different because there's really no safe amount of cocaine or heroin that you should be taking. So I think any amount of illicit drugs, I I would have a much harder time of classifying that as a suicide. But yes, for prescribed medications, once again, if the level is is just super sky high, I would uh, be thinking of suicide. Yeah, and this happens often with suicide cases in which decedents decide to take a large amount of over-the-counter medication such as Tylenol or ibuprofen. And although it's over-the-counter medication, using a large amount of it will result in death. And these cases are uh, most likely suicides because this does not result in any psychoactive effects uh, on the body. So I assume they are taking it to commit suicide. Let's move on to scenario two. The same young woman was witnessed to ask a friend to inject her with the heroin as she was squeamish about needles. Does this change the manner of death? Uh, For me, not so much. I think in general for drug-related deaths, I would still default to accident and proviso meaning the things I talked about during scenario one. But yeah, I think I would keep this as an accident for a manner of death. Does the fact that it was injected by another person make a difference? I think, once again, it just still remains as an accident. In these cases, I'm always sometimes a little bit confused, but we also get asked by a lot of medical students regarding this, is that if it's injected by another person, could that be homicide? Because then technically, it's death at the hands of another person. Any thoughts on that? Well, yes. Uh, When we look at the results uh, that NAME got for a similar type of scenario, this actually is one in which the community was split between accident and homicide. Uh, So certainly uh, interpreting the definition of homicide as death caused by another person, in this case another person doing the injection, that could apply. And then what about her consent to the injection? Well, her consent to the injection means that she was 
willing to inject herself with this drug that could have caused her death and she knew that beforehand that's why i think it's reasonable to list the manner of death in this case as an accident and i agree with dr song's approach the third scenario is a little different a man with a long-standing history of cocaine abuse develops heart disease with high blood pressure and coronary artery disease and has a heart attack and dies toxicology revealed no cocaine or cocaine breakdown products in his system What is the manner of death? In a case like this, I think I would say natural um, due to his longstanding history of heart disease and high blood pressure, especially since there's no drugs found in his system. Correct. I think in this case, it very well could be. The heart disease could be due to his longstanding history of drug abuse, or it could just be genetics, lifestyle, and age. Um, But without the proof of use of cocaine in any form, um, the best option would be natural. Yes, it does make difference. The presence of the parent cocaine in blood uh, means it was an acute toxicity that led to death. However, if the breakdown products were found in his blood, that means he could have used this drug hours to days before his death. And this is why we cannot uh, reliably link his death to acute cocaine toxicity, and the manner of death in that case would be natural as well. I think in chronic users who have just simply the breakdown products in their blood, you can show a chronicity to that and a contributory effect of that drug to their heart disease. So although it may not be the immediate cause of death, it can contribute to that heart disease. And in that case, it can default to an accident for the manner instead of natural. The fourth scenario is a high schooler who attended a house party and drank alcohol until they passed out, and they never woke up. Toxicology revealed a massive level of alcohol in their system. What is the manner of death? This is one that is quite similar to case number one. Again, we have a person that has acute toxic effects due to an acutely using a drug or a poison, and thus, in this case, I would say that this is an accident. Does the fact that they're underage make a difference? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think the age necessarily moves the needle from uh, accident. However, even though this person is a high schooler, that doesn't mean that they have not been drinking alcohol for a very long period of time. We unfortunately see many cases where people have a long-standing history of alcohol use at very early ages. Would it matter if the teen drank in their own home with parental consent and with the parents providing the alcohol? No, it doesn't matter. The determination of manner of death in this case is based on several factors. First, the blood alcohol uh, level and their tolerance to alcohol. Some people have higher tolerance to alcohol, and these are the chronic alcohol abusers. So depending on the level of alcohol that is present in their system and presence or absence of history of alcoholism, we can choose either accident or other manners of death for this case. The fifth and last scenario in our drugs and alcohol category is a middle-aged man with a long history of alcoholism is found dead in his home. Autopsy revealed cirrhosis of the liver and evidence of end-stage liver disease. Toxicology was negative for alcohol. What is the manner of death? So the manner of death in this case is uh, natural. Here we have decedent with clear evidence of chronic alcoholism, evidenced by cirrhosis of the liver and end-stage liver disease complications, and that could be esophageal uh, varices, which might rupture and cause upper GI bleed. Although uh, the toxicology was negative for alcohol, uh, we have evidence of chronic alcoholism, and that's why we assign uh, natural to the manner of death in this case. Now, this case uh, is actually quite similar to case number four, the previous case. Both decedents consumed alcohol, but we're saying one is natural and the other one is accident. Can someone clarify that for me? Yes. So when alcohol is present in high concentration in blood, that could lead to sudden death. Uh, We assign accident to the manner of death. However, in this case, uh, there was no alcohol in the blood. However, he had 
complications of chronic alcoholism and this is why the manner of death is natural in this case and i think this case is similar to the case where cocaine abuser uh, was found unresponsive with maybe breakdown products of cocaine in his system although there was no um, uh, there was no parent cocaine that we could directly link to his death. Well, let's change the scenario in in scenario five where you have a person with a long history of alcoholism. Would it modify your manner if his toxicology showed a very high level of alcohol, actually the same level as in scenario four where the high schooler was consuming alcohol? Let's say a level of 0.3. I don't think so. Um, like I said before, people have different tolerances to alcohol and uh, since this decedent was chronic alcoholic then we expect that he has higher tolerance to higher amount of alcohol uh, and this is why the manner is going to be still natural in this case. I think that although classically we are trained that in someone with a history of alcoholism and autopsy evidence of it alcohol in their system would not change the manner of death however we all know of cases in which known alcoholics die with sky-high levels, like above 0.5. We've had some in the office that are 0 0.67, 0 0.75. And it seems that when the levels are above, say, 0.5 and are sky-high, sometimes the medical examiner will actually rule it accident. So we sort of violate our own rules mm -hmm. if the level is truly impressive. Let's move on to the next scenarios, and these involve gunshot wounds. The first one is a teenager who is playing Russian roulette with friends. Now, if you don't know what Russian roulette is, it's where you take a revolver, specifically a revolver, you place one round into the cylinder, you close the chamber, and you spin the cylinder. Then, in this scenario, the teenager puts the gun to his head and pulls the trigger. The firearm discharges and creates a contact gunshot wound to the temple. Oh, for this case... What's the manner of death? For this one, I would say suicide, because our definition of suicide is death at one's own hand. And uh, the decedent in this case put a gun to his head and shot himself. So that is death at one's own hands, and so I would say suicide. I agree with Dr. Wynn. Um, here in our office, we uh, strip the intention from the act. So uh, designating suicide to the manner of death is probably the uh, approach that will fit with our definition of suicide. Does the presence of drugs or alcohol in a system make any difference? No, it does not. The presence of alcohol or drugs does not make a difference in uh, determining the manner of death in this case. So in your opinion, this uh, teenager is involving himself in a activity in which there's a high risk of death. That's what places it as suicide? Yes, and um, they know the high risk that is associated with uh, taking this action. What about people who uh, do extreme sports like base jumping? There's a very high risk of death in base jumping. Would that be suicide or accident? I would say in those instances yeah. it would be accident because not every time that they base jump um, is there going to be a risk of I think death. more likely than not that people would not die while a person shoots themselves with a gun, they'll die. That's the difference. Well, here, revolver. most revolvers have six chambers. Mm -hmm. So you have one out of six chance of shooting yourself. I think the risk of death for base jumping is 1 out of 10. So they're not the same, but mm -hmm. they're similar. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that there's probably lesser versions of base jumping in which death is not always a 1 in, a one in 10 certainty or a severe injury 1 in 10. Uh, so therefore, I think accident would be a much better manner of death, unless, of course, the person is known to be suicidal and voices suicidal ideations and then quote, base jumps, unquote, mm -hmm. meaning they jumped off of something to end right. to end the, their mm -hmm. life. Now, we've talked about this scenario in the past, Dr. Lavity and myself. She and I disagree, but let's say we take the Russian roulette scenario and you have several individuals. One person loads 
six rounds into the cylinder, closes it, spins it, and hands it to another individual. That other individual discharges the weapon in their head. What would you consider the manner? I still would say suicide because, again, I, as Dr. Reyes said, I'm stripping the intent out of it. Um, and so in this case, again, the person takes the gun, even though it's from another person's hand, and puts it to their head and shoots themselves. So, again, mm-hmm. suicide. Even if the second person who takes the gun thinks that there is the possibility that they won't be shooting themselves? But then the other flip side of that is that they know that there is a possibility that they're going to shoot themselves. And I think that's a higher chance that they'll shoot themselves. Mm -hmm. All right. In the next scenario, an off-duty policeman was at a party and started waving his gun around and saying that it wasn't loaded. He pointed the gun in the air and it discharged, striking a woman clear across the room. What's the manner of death here? The manner of death here is homicide. Going by the strictest definition, someone else's hand pulled the trigger, resulting in another person's death. In these cases, though, um, the general public describes these as accidental shootings. Why are we calling it a homicide if the public says they're accidental? I think that by having a very pragmatic approach to determining the manner of death for firearm injuries makes the most sense, particularly in a jurisdiction such as the one we're in. Um, By sticking to the strictest definitions of whose finger pulled the trigger and not considering intent makes the most sense. For instance, in a case like this saying, well, wasn't pointed at someone, shot it in the air, therefore this would be an accident. And certainly some jurisdictions do rule it that way and they will defend their answer in court. Here in Wayne County, we have a very high homicide rate. The vast majority are firearm injuries. We have a high suicide rate. The vast majority are firearm injuries. And if we started to consider the intent or what was in someone's head when they pulled the trigger, uh, we would literally be spending every day in court trying to defend our position when at the end of the day, we don't know what was in someone's head. All we know is what looking at the body and the wound on the body. We're not the police officer. We are not the family. We are not the prosecutor. And at the end of the day, we truly don't know what was in someone's head or what was their actual intent. Um, So by sticking to the strict definition of whose hand pulled the trigger and letting the other parties decide what was the intent makes the most sense. I want to add here that designating homicide for the manner of death does not indicate a criminal uh, nature to the act. We have a strict definition of homicide, which is death on the hands of another person slash persons. Um, And that does not mean that the act was criminal. However, in the legal definition, they take the intent and other circumstances that surrounds the scene in consideration. So the manner of death here does not include intent. Now, this does not mean that in court we cannot consider scenarios in which the weapon was not pointed at the decedent. We do frequently get confronted with the, they didn't mean to shoot the person, they they held the weapon up and shot it at, to scare them, and the bullet ricocheted off of something and struck the body. Now, that is something that we can consider because we have the body to look at. So we can look at the wound on the skin, the wound tract, and the projectile recovered and say whether it is possible that that bullet struck something before hitting the decedent or it is very unlikely that that bullet passed through another object. So we are able to evaluate evaluate those scenarios without considering what was in the mind of the shooter or, again, where the gun was actually pointed because we were not there. So if I'm hearing you correctly, where the weapon was pointed really doesn't make a difference for the most part. Correct. Mm-hmm. How about in celebratory gunfire, let's say beginning of a new year or a 4th of July where people are firing guns into the air, the case of the falling bullet, would that in your mind be a homicide, accident? Homicide. I still would go with homicide. Again, as Dr. Lavney, Dr. Reyes said, stripping of the intent, again, still death at a hand of another person, whoever that person was that shot that bullet. And I think we've seen a couple of cases of that here in our own Michigan New Year celebrations. I agree with doctors here. I would choose homicide. In the scenario with the police officer, 
Does the knowledge of the gun being loaded or unloaded make a difference? Uh, no, because again, our definition or our determination is simply that he pulled the trigger and resulted in the death of another person. However, in those jurisdictions where they would consider accident here, certainly him having knowledge where the gun was pointed and if he had knowledge that that gun was loaded or not would clearly be going into their decision making uh, as to whether it is an accident or it is a homicide. Very good. Okay, next scenario. Here, a three-year-old finds his father's loaded handgun while he was playing. He points it at a sibling and pulls the trigger, killing him. What's the manner of death here? I think all of the listeners will know what we're going to say next since we just said it in the last three cases, but homicide. Although we have a child with a gun, again, it's death at the hands of another person, so it would be homicide. How much do you consider the age of the shooter in deciding the manner? This is a three-year-old. This is not a factor to me if the death was caused by another person that is homicide. Yeah, I, I tend to disagree. Now, obviously, it's impossible to know, but a three-year-old is pretty young. They may not, in fact, even know that this is a gun. Some three-year-olds don't. They, to them, it's simply an object, and something that they man- manipulate results in the death of a person. I understand your perspective, Dr. Sung, but I think that if a three-year-old can pull a trigger, that means that they wanted to pull that trigger. I don't think handguns are made so that children can easily pull the trigger. I don't know if that's true or not. It depends on the firearm. Some, in fact, have very light trigger pulls where only it might take one or two pounds of pressure to actuate that trigger. So it is possible that a three-year-old would have enough grip strength. Also, we don't know how this child is being raised. Is this child being raised in a gun culture with guns out and around and available? Do they see these firearms being used by the adults? And although I am loath to actually say this, there are a lot of games now that children can play in which they're shoot 'em games. Um, so maybe they're watching their older siblings play a shooting game on a game console. Um, so I think that there are some possibilities where a three-year-old picks it up and pulls the trigger, meaning, as Dr. Wynn said, to pull that trigger, not fully understanding what the ramifications of it. But I still think that if someone pulls the trigger and results in the death of another person, that that should be ruled a homicide, not based on age. Okay. Now, are there any shooting scenarios that would be ruled an accident? Yes. Very, very few. And I think that by sticking to very strict criteria in your mind, you then won't, again, be dealing with this concept of intent with every shooting case. I think that shootings that very reasonably could be called accidental are ones in which the firearm is defective. So therefore, it cannot be used in its normal way. Uh, And then also any scenario in which actually no one's hands are on the trigger. When here in the office, when we talk about this, I always use the same example of an accidental shooting in which no one's hands are on the trigger. And this would be a group of mechanics in a garage working on cars. And one mechanic on one side of the room throws a wrench into a toolbox on the other side, not knowing that there was actually a shotgun in that toolbox. The wrench hits the shotgun and the weapon discharges through the side of the toolbox and strikes and kills another mechanic. In this case, I think accident is very reasonable because no one knew that that shotgun was there and no one's hands were on the trigger. So how can we prove that the gun was defective? You would have to submit that weapon to the crime lab or the police investigators, and there's a number of things that they can test with the weapon. And I'm not here to go through all of those different mechanisms that they use, but sometimes they will physically drop the weapon. Uh, They may take a hammer and strike the weapon to see if it will discharge when all of the normal safety mechanisms of that weapon are engaged. If those normal safety mechanisms are engaged and the weapon still discharges, then it generally would be classified as a, a defective weapon. 
I think that when someone is considering whether or not this could be accidental with a defective weapon, that is usually information that starts with the law enforcement investigating the death. Uh, this isn't usually something that us looking at the wound would be considering unless we see a very atypical wound that doesn't seem to fit the story. Uh, so this concept of the defective weapon really, I think, starts with the law enforcement there at the scene seeing the actual weapon and having suspicions about it. Next scenario, a man with a history of mental illness and previous suicide attempts gets into a confrontation with police. He states that he wants to die and pulls a gun on the police who shoot and kill him. What's the manner of death? In a case like this, I think sometimes I have difficulty deciding between homicide and suicide. Using our own terms here in our office, I think it's easy to say it's homicide. The police shot a person, so it's homicide. But I think there's an idea that this could be a provoked suicide. Any thoughts on that? I understand how some would classify uh, death in this case as suicide due to the act of provoking the police to shoot the decedent. However, in our definition of homicide, the manner of homicide would fit better. Yeah, I mean, these cases are known as suicide by cop, and certainly some could make the argument that you are using the police as a weapon to end your own life. But I think that most jurisdictions would just rule this a homicide. Mm-hmm. Now, rounding up the last in the gunshot wounds, A man who was shot 10 years ago in an attempted robbery dies of long-standing infectious complications, including decubitus ulcers on the buttocks, with the infection extending to the underlying bone, urinary tract infections, and sepsis, which is infection of the bloodstream. What is the manner of death here? Homicide. And why? Uh, The underlying reason for his death is the gunshot wounds. Uh, And the gunshot wounds started a chain of infectious complications that are well documented and would not otherwise be there if it was not for the gunshot wound. Uh, So whether you die immediately of an effect of a gunshot wound or you die of a complication years later, the manner of death is still a homicide. Is there a time limit to concluding this as a homicide? No. There's no time limit. Uh, We've had cases where it's been a 50-year history of complications eventually resulting in someone's death. But I would point out, though, that there might be a time limit for when police reports and medical records are actually retained. For instance, in the case where we were talking from 50 years ago, neither the hospital or the police station or the records still existed. Uh, So although there's no time frame for us ruling it a homicide, there might actually be time constraints in what the prosecutors and the law enforcement can actually do with the case because of other records being destroyed. I think another complication with this type of case is where a person who has a long protracted course of healing and ultimately dies, the families may not necessarily make that connection. So if this person has traveled to different cities, different states, those medical records may not go with that individual. So when the death is reported to the medical examiner's office, the family may not make that connection between the gunshot wound and why they had all these illnesses. And that might fall under natural, inappropriately so. So if we can't find the uh, documents uh, which prove a gunshot wound, uh, what would the manner of death be in this case? If it's presented as a gunshot wound, and there might be some gaps in the timeline, but you could reasonably classify that as a homicide. But if you have no records at all, and if you have no knowledge that there ever was a gunshot wound, then just based on the information presented, it would probably fall as natural. I think Dr. Sung also alluded to something that's very important here at the medical examiner's office, and that it really is a team effort. And what I mean by that is uh, how we secure that information of past history of gunshot wounds, medical information, is requested by us doctors, but it's our investigators that really get that information by speaking to police, witnesses, family members, and hopefully we can get that information if they ever had a history of a gunshot wound. You know, I think that in cases uh, where perhaps the reporting and the medical records and, and the police reports are spotty at best, when we have 
the projectile in the body and it's in a location where these complicate, you know, like in the spine. So all of these complications make sense. We with the body can make that connection from gunshot wound to death. Now, if it's a case, though, in which there is no projectile in the body or it was someone who was beaten or given a history of beaten and we don't have any injuries left and we don't have any evidence in the body of that initial assault uh, and we then don't have medical records in order to fill in those gaps. In these types of cases, the manner of death might be indeterminate or it might be natural if uh, there's truly no connection to the underlying assault that is left. Mm-hmm. Now I will present you with five traffic fatality scenarios. First one is a man driving his car through an intersection and another vehicle traveling in another direction does not stop and T-bones the man's car. The other vehicle was stolen and was being chased by the police. What is the manner of death in this case? In this case, the manner of death would be accident, which is death that has an unexpected outcome. And Dr. Sung referred to this when he was explaining the manners of death earlier. I agree with uh, what you said. And for uh, legal purposes, that might be different. Um, This person struck another vehicle while he was being chased by the police. So he might be prosecuted for the death of that individual. There are some jurisdictions that do actually consider additional felony actions such as leaving the scene or the additional felony of the car theft. And so there are some jurisdictions that would actually call this a homicide. For instance, Freddie Gray's death, that was the individual who died in the back of the paddy wagon, and although he was handcuffed, he was not otherwise secured in the back of that vehicle, and they drove around, and then when they finally stopped, they found him unresponsive on the ground. That death was called a homicide based on traffic and restraint violations that existed. Uh, Here in Wayne County, we do not consider what the traffic laws and any potential violations are, and we just look at the actual circumstances of the traffic death. I think in those jurisdictions, it can be particularly difficult for the medical examiner because the medical examiner must necessarily have knowledge of those laws. And I know for myself, I would not like to be always on my game and knowing exactly the laws and if there's any changes to those laws. And we know from experience that about 99% of the traffic fatalities we rule an accident, they still have trials and they can call it vehicular homicide, vehicular manslaughter. Uh, And so these deaths, even though we call it accident, the charges and what is actually someone would be convicted on will consider all of these other violations. Mm -hmm. Does the police chase make any difference? No. 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 What if the car that struck the man's vehicle was the police? Still no. Still no, because, again, it's a motor vehicle accident, and I would say had an unexpected outcome of a death, and so accident. Yes. Uh, I'll present the uh, next scenario here. A middle-aged man with a history of epilepsy from a brain tumor was driving a vehicle and appeared to lose control and strike a tree. Autopsy confirmed the brain tumor and revealed lethal blunt force injuries to the chest from the impact. What is the manner of death? Accident. We don't concern ourselves with why a traffic accident happened. We just have to concern ourselves if the death was due to the actual impact or not. In this case, while it seems likely that the brain tumor might have caused this actual accident, we don't know. It could have been any other factor. And in this case, because we have lethal injuries from the impact, we know that he was alive at the time of the impact and that he could not have survived it. Therefore, accident is the appropriate manner of death. I agree. And the direct cause of death was uh, multiple injuries here. I agree. I think what Dr. Lavity and Dr. Reyes said is the important part of this scenario. It's where there are lethal injuries to the chest. It's different than if a person is having a medical event, understands that something is happening and pulls their car over to the side and then passes at the side of the road without any injuries at all. There, it wouldn't be accident because there's no injuries to the body. 
Are there traffic fatalities that would be ruled natural? Uh, yes. As Dr. Sung just stated, there are traffic fatalities that in which there is a natural event happening behind the wheel uh, as a heart attack or a stroke. And again, we can generally tell that because although these are, seem to be very sudden deaths, there actually is some sort of wherewithal that something's not right. And they manage to take their foot off the gas, uh, brake, and the subsequent impact and damage to the vehicle is not as severe as if they were fully conscious. And then when we look at the body, we'll find the underlying disease. And the most important part is that there are no lethal injuries present. Uh, so in this case, you know that it was a natural event that happened behind the wheel of the car resulting in the death and it was that event that caused the accident. Let's move to the next scenario. A woman leaves a house and attempts to cross the middle of a street at night and is struck by a vehicle that did not stop. Autopsy revealed lethal head injuries. What is the manner of death in this case? Accident. Yes. What if toxicology revealed a really high level of alcohol? For me, in this case, the level and even the consumption of alcohol has no bearing on the manner of death. Again, like the last scenario, it was the lethal head injuries that were the direct cause of her death. And so that's why we say accident. Uh, but some would list alcohol toxicity as another contributing condition to death due to causing her to not see the car that is, uh, or that struck her while crossing the street. I think that's falling into the dangerous territory of trying to understand intent. That, to me, the alcohol, it, it might be a factor for why she stepped out into the street, but that still is not actually what caused or contributed to her cause of death. I mean, she stepped out in the street for whatever reason, and the car hit her, and she died from injuries as a result of it. So I would argue that any drugs or alcohol might help for the family to understand why this particular event happened, but it really is not the cause of death. Does it matter that it was a hit and run as the vehicle did not stop? I don't think so. Yeah. Once again, the vehicle that causes the injury may stop, may continue on, but that doesn't change the fact that this woman had the injuries to her body. So no, I think that remains as an accident. But in some jurisdictions, this is like hit and run is the one category. If they consider no other traffic violations or evidence of intent, hit and run uh, is one in which a lot of jurisdictions in this country will rule a homicide. Uh, we just are not one of those. Say if this same woman had also history of depression and made many suicidal comments in the days prior to being struck by the vehicle, what would be the manner of death in this case? This is a difficult one for me. I think I would, um, being here at the office and trained here at the office, still say accident uh, again because the death had an unexpected outcome. And stripping a little bit of the intent away, I'm just looking at the fact that a car hit her. And so that would be an accident. I, and I agree. I would say accident. I think in order for this scenario to be a suicide, there would have to be direct and immediately preceding suicidal comments, and it would have to be witnessed that this person knowingly and willingly stepped out and stood in front of a vehicle. Anything less than that, uh, there are individuals, lots of us have history of depression. Some comments could be interpreted as suicidal at one point, but without a direct connection to her death, there's no way for us to prove that that was an intentional act at that moment for her. Um, so without that evidence, I think that accident is the appropriate manner of death. Are there any traffic fatalities that are ruled suicide? Yes. Again, I think those in which you can actually prefer a pedestrian, again, making direct comments and then witnessed or being caught on video to directly stand in front of a vehicle and get struck. Drivers can also, there can be some in which you can write a suicide note, voice these things. And, and again, if you are witness to drive into something that results in your death, then those very clearly you're using the car as the weapon to end your own life. Let's move to another scenario. Let's say uh, that the same woman got into a fight with another woman, uh, one that involved threats, punching, and pushing. She left the house, and a short time later, she was struck by a vehicle, one that was driven by the other woman. What is the manner of death in this case? 
I think there's a little difficulty, but for myself, I would uh, place this into uh, a homicide because of the chronicity or the time frame in which a physical altercation was involved with both of these women. Here in the scenario that's presented, it was a very short time later that the woman was struck by a vehicle. So there's that lack of separation between the initial physical altercation between the women and then her ultimately being struck by the other vehicle. So the other woman is using the vehicle as a means to end this uh, woman's life. I think just based on the little information that we have, I might be thinking uh, more accident in that I would need stronger evidence that the driver used their vehicle to strike the person. Thankfully, in real life, in these types of cases, they are rare, but they do occur. And in these cases, the police investigation makes this distinction very clear for us. These are cases in which there are multiple people, multiple witnesses, and what if the woman got behind the wheel and aimed for and struck the other woman, there is evidence of that. And so making in real life the determination of homicide is pretty easy. Uh, but just based on this scenario, and I'm not able to use indeterminate by the rules, <laughs> um, I would be more comfortable with accident because there's not enough proof of the woman using her vehicle as a weapon. What if both women had high levels of alcohol in their uh, blood at the time of the incident? Just like the previous case, for me, the alcohol consumption does not affect my manner. I also am more leaning towards Dr. Lavity, where I do need to have a stronger intent to do harm to say homicide. But either one, accident or homicide, alcohol does not play a role in my manner of death. But also intent shouldn't either. As we have said in many times before, try to pull intent out of classification of her manner. Well, again, this is why there's a subjectivity exactly. uh, and, and yeah. art to exactly. this. That ev even though we say we, don't, no intent, we don't consider we intent, in, yeah. intent <laughs> that it does creep in in uh, certain yeah. situations. These last five cases will be discussing suicide. In the first case, a teenager who's depressed texted several of his friends saying that he wanted to end it all. And then he ingested several handfuls of pills. He himself then calls EMS before he passes out. EMS transports the teen to the hospital and dies despite life-saving measures. The toxicology report showed very high levels of several medications responsible for death. What is the manner of death? Suicide. He uh, left what we call suicide note by texting several of his friends saying that he wanted to end it all. And the presence of very high levels of uh, several medications could have directly caused his death. So let's change the scenario slightly and say, after he ingested the pills, he realized that he didn't want to die and said he changed his mind. How would that affect your manner of death? Well, if he still ended up dead, that would not change the manner of death in this case. He ingested uh, these pills, and this is why the manner here is suicide. Ultimately, his actions resulted in his own death, yes. whether or not he changed his mind. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the next scenario, an elderly man with multiple medical conditions, including severe heart disease, wants to end his life. He writes several suicide notes and is found dead with an empty pill bottle. The autopsy confirms that he had severe heart disease, but post-mortem toxicology is negative for any drugs. What is the manner of death? Natural. Does the lack of drugs make any difference? Uh, yes, because without any drugs, then there is no evidence that he actually did do something to try and bring about the end of his own life. In these cases, and we see this quite often, um, elderly people with some history of depression and they're found with empty pill bottles would be a typical scenario. And the toxicology is negative. These people, they die. Now, whether he died before he could have ingested all, all those pills or if he reconsidered, we will never know. But essentially, they had a heart attack before they could end their own life. And these are natural deaths. Would your opinion change if the toxicology was positive, but the drugs were not in the toxic range? Yes. If there is like a suicide note and the empty pill bottles are the medications that are in their system, uh, then yes, I would be sliding more towards suicide because in the levels would not necessarily 
be the convincing factor because when you have underlying disease processes, you can succumb to drug levels that would be perfectly fine in an otherwise healthy person. Uh, so given the right set of circumstances, if there were some of those drugs in this elderly man, then I would be considering suicide. So let's change the scenario a little bit and say instead of an empty pill bottle, we see that he has a knife in his hand and has uh, flesh wounds to his wrists. Would that change your manner at all? If there were blood vessels severed in the wrist wounds and therefore resulting in blood loss that could actually bring about someone's death, in those cases, I would say suicide. Uh, If there were just superficial wounds that just broke the skin, then that is not enough to result in death, and that would be a natural death. We do not ascribe to the theory that you basically scare yourself into death, meaning that the concept of taking your own life precipitates a fatal arrhythmia. I think that that's making far too many leaps into the mind of somebody without any scientific proof whatsoever. So therefore, if there's drugs or lethal injury suicide, if there is the absence of that, then they die from their natural disease. Moving on to the next case, an elderly man with multiple medical conditions wants to end his life. He takes an overdose of his spouse's medications. What is the manner of death? Suicide. I don't think the origin of the medications makes a difference here, whether it's his, his wife's, brother's, sister's. He still took the medication. Now, is there a difference if the spouse either has knowledge or even consented to the medications being taken by their, their loved one? I don't think it makes any difference. Here we have a decedent who ingested medication resulting in his uh, death. So this would be suicide. Now let's change the scenario again and say, what if the spouse gives the decedent the medication? And I think uh, a famous case in Michigan we all know of uh, physicians giving medications to end life is known here. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? Would that change your manner of death? For myself, that would enter into a homicide where if you have a person who is unable to physically take the medication and are given the medication, it's someone else's actions that ends uh, this person who, even though they want to die, ends their life. I think that if the spouse, say, bought or went to the store and got the medications, but the decedent was still the one that physically ingested it, to me that would still be a suicide. If the decedent was not able to physically ingest the medications, uh, so therefore it was administered to them, I then can understand people wanting to rule that homicide going by the strictest definitions. An example of that is a quadriplegic man who was found unresponsive with cocaine in his blood. Some would entertain homicide for the manner of death uh, due to his inability to administer cocaine on his own, and that might fall under homicide. That then loops back to our first group of scenarios uh, with the heroin addict that was squeamish about needles. Was the quadriplegic... uh, Did they want to do the cocaine and therefore consented to it being put into their system or not? I can see that those two cases have similar parallels. That's why manner of death is not always as easy as it seems. (laughs) Moving on, an eight-year-old child was sent to his room as punishment for fighting in school and not doing his chores. He was later found hanging by a belt from his closet door. What is the manner of death? Suicide. Now, does the presence of injuries consistent with corporal punishment, like being spanked, make any difference? No. How about a history of depression and bullying at school? No. I think that bolsters the manner of being suicide. How about the history of, say, choking game? So the choking game is a game, and we'll use that in quotes, where children and adolescents place pressure on their neck to induce the hypoxia, and presumably not actually pass out. Uh, The purpose of this is that supposedly when the pressure is relieved from the neck, there is a euphoria. And so children and adolescents play this game in, in order to not only get high, and they feel that it's safer because they're not doing drugs. And 
in these cases, you have to seriously consider uh, when you find a child or an adolescent with a ligature around their neck whether they were engaging in the choking game. For this, you need to just not hear the words choking game as families would want to do, but we would need to see actual evidence. Is there any history of the child playing this game with friends? And this is frequently done online, like through FaceTime, uh, check the computer history. Is the child in the room for long periods of time? And then when they come out, they're disoriented, they're confused, they complain of a pounding headache, their face may be congested, and they could have hemorrhages in their eyes or marks on their neck. Uh, This would all be evidence that the child did engage in this behavior. And if this is a child that did that, then yes, we have to seriously consider uh, when the child is found, was this part of the choking? I mean, did the child go up to their room and they were up there for hours, so they decided to play the choking game with their friends? Or was this just an impulsive act on this child as a sort of, I'll show you, and then they ended up actually hanging themselves and bringing about their own death? Now you, Dr. Labney, alluded a little bit to having some sort of evidence that this was a game in general with suicides. Do we need to have a suicide note or suicidal ideations or evidence of history of past suicide attempts in order to say that it's a suicide? No. Uh, I mean, that information is very, very helpful. Uh, But particularly with children, that may not be present. Uh, Children are very impulsive, and they may not think through all of the ramifications of an act that they're doing. Um, Also, in children, they may not actually know to write an actual suicide note. Um, However, in these cases, there are usually history of behavioral issues, depression, triggers such as the ones that you've asked questions about, and the child may have actually voiced something about, you know, I'm just going to end it all or something along that effect. But again, in children, we don't need to see this because we know that this can be an impulsive act. So in this case, I said that it was an eight-year-old and we ruled the manner of death as suicide. Is there an age limit to using the manner of death of suicide? I think this is a big gray area and that each case has to be considered individually. Obviously, when you get very, very young children, they may not realize that placing something around their neck could bring about their death. Another possibility with very young children is that this could be accidental in the form of play. Like children who are playing hide-and-seek or they're climbing on things, they may fall or get into a scenario in which a ligature is around their neck and bring about their death, but it's not a suicidal act. But I think that as a whole, we consider each of these children individually. But I think that there's a big gray area when it comes to the age, that there's probably is an age limit for each one of us where we would not call it a suicide and we would call it accident. Yeah, it's very difficult. And there's many things that you might have to gather from the family as far as information. And uh, it can be a very difficult manner to classify. And as you said, Dr. Lavity, um, in a previous case, we were discussing the gunshot wounds. I think children can role play. And so we're unfamiliar with their environment, if they were role playing, if they were watching TV and saw something. And so I agree with you that in children cases, we do take it case by case. But I would say like as a general rule, if you say it's a five-year-old and they're sent up to their room and the five-year-old declares that I'm going to show you I'm going to end it all and then you find them hanging, I think that we would rule that a suicide whether or not that five-year-old really thought through all of the outcomes of that particular action. Now on to our last case. A man with a history of schizophrenia jumps off the roof of a parking structure that he drove into with his vehicle and dies. What is the manner of death? I think uh, it's a suicide in this case. Um, Why wouldn't it be an accident? Well, although the man had history of uh, schizophrenia, he jumped off the roof and that resulted in his death. So his action caused his death and that's why it is suicide. Does it matter if he had paranoid delusions? I would say no, but I know that based on the 
scenario results in the forensic community. This is another one in which the community is split. Some would call this suicide and some would say that in the presence of paranoid delusions uh, that this could be an accident essentially because they weren't in their right mind or they felt that they were being chased or persecuted and that they were trying to escape it. I think that for us, if you drive into a parking structure and drive up to the roof and then jump off, that entire act shows purpose and would make it a suicide regardless of the thoughts that were going on in their head. I think we had a very good discussion with all these cases. Are there any that you want to bring up yourself? Well, I have one. It's one that involves autoerotic asphyxia. Here in the scenario, a person places a noose around, a ligature, I won't say noose, a ligature around their neck for a heightened sexual gratification. And in in the scenario that I'm proposing, the person ends up dead. So for that case, what would you consider the manner of death? I think we can entertain accident for the manner of death in this case because some use ligature hanging as a mean to pleasure themselves and uh, get high. And then they subsequently die from doing that act and that's why it's an accident. Would you ever consider suicide? Um, If they have no history of uh, suicidal attempts, if there's no depression or any suicidal ideation present, I would not. I think that I have maybe some rather stricter criteria in order to rule it an accidental autoerotic death versus a suicidal hanging. Um, I need more than just the family saying that they engaged in this behavior. I would also need more than just pornographic materials or or being dressed in gender-specific clothing or having S&M gear. What is really key in these cases is that there has to be some sort of escape mechanism that the person employs to relieve the pressure on their neck. These aren't people that just hang and then hope that before they pass out that they can remove themselves from the noose. There has to be an escape mechanism which then shows me that this is something that they have done before and that they successfully employed that mechanism and that it failed in this case. In the absence of that, I would rule these deaths suicidal hanging. All right. Very good. I think... I was going to say one more thing. Go ahead, Dr. Wynn. Just a question, since I'm the youngest medical examiner here, but when do you use indeterminate? I haven't used it yet, but speaking to my more experienced medical examiners, have you ever used indeterminate as the manner of death, and when? I definitely have. And there are cases in which the information is a little lacking. Maybe there's medical records that I would like to read and review, but they simply were not available. And sometimes... There's that gray area, just as we were talking today with children particularly. It can be very difficult, if not impossible, to gather all of what you would need to satisfy your criteria for classifying something as an accident or a suicide or a homicide. I think in general there are two types of cases that we will use indeterminate. One would be in which the materials available are not enough for us to make the manner of death determination. So the medical record is not there, the police report. There's a chunk of information missing, and because of that, we cannot make the determination. Then I think the other group is the one in which those gray area cases are, in which you could go either way uh, or the information could be interpreted so that you can't exclude manners of death. Um, For instance, for a firearm injury, it could be a very complex scenario where you're not sure exactly. There's a lot of hands grabbing for a gun, so you don't know whose hand was actually on the weapon. And say the safety had been disabled, so you don't really know then what part the weapon functioning properly has or not. Um, So if you can't exclude all the manners and end with one, then in those cases, it is appropriate to use indeterminate. Also in suicide-homicide cases that do not have any clear evidence regarding who shot who um, and a similar autopsy might not show the uh, range of fire in these cases. So this case you would use indeterminate for not sufficient information available to 
classify it in any of the manners. Actually, I would add another group of cases, and that would be infants in which we find no cause of death. Cases that were historically called SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Uh, that is something that I think the lay public believes is a disease or an entity, but it actually just means we don't know how the child died. Currently now, uh, the medical community decides not to use SIDS uh, to basically call these deaths what they actually are, which is unknown, that we don't know what the cause of death is, and because we don't know what the cause of death is, the manner of death, therefore, is indeterminate. The assumption for most of these SIDS deaths is that it is due to some underlying natural disease that right now uh, science just doesn't have a handle on. But that would be another category in which we just could find nothing to explain death, and therefore it would be an unknown cause in determinate manner. I think the freedoms to use indeterminate are very much influenced by where you're practicing. Uh, certain offices use it much more frequently than others. I think historically in our office through the years, about, uh, I would say, between 3 and 5% of the cases that come through this office ultimately have an indeterminate manner of death. All right, so this wraps up the second episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you back next time. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.